Uh, good morning, everybody. <laughs> good morning. If you want to draw your conversations maybe to a close, there'll be opportunity to catch up and chat later. So good to see you guys back from New Day. And looking, we're relatively fresh, actually, which is really good. Yeah, how much sleep did you manage to get, if any? H how many times did you wash during the week? Hands, hands up if it was four times during the week. Okay. Hands up if it was three times during the week. Hands up if it was twice during the week. Oh, okay, good. Well done. You wash more than twice during the week. That's brilliant. Very good. I really look forward to catching up at some point with you guys about how you got on. Um, we're sort of taking a break over the summer from our series looking at the Gospel of Luke. And just to sort of really explore a little bit maybe what God is saying. If God has been speaking to us as, as those who are speaking. Things that have been, God has been burdening our hearts with. Um, so this is the first of that sort of summer series, if you like. And if you've got a Bible, you want to turn to the book of Daniel. Um, that's in the Old Testament. And we're going to be looking at just one verse in Daniel, chapter 11. And that's verse 32. <coughs> so if you want to find that verse. Got it. Well done. <laughs> Daniel chapter 11, verse 32. Uh, I'll read the NIV version, and then I'll read the ESV version. So the NIV version says this, With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. And the ESV sort of slightly expands on this a bit. He says, He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God will stand firm and take action. And really, it's just this burden of, do we know God? Or what's the God we know? Because the God we know is the God that we will show to people. And that's, I'm just becoming to realize that more and more. There's a, there's a quote that struck me recently from a book I've been reading, because it's resonated with sort of my position. And it says this, it says, The pastor, frustrated with a recalcitrant flock... Now that's not, when I say that's my position, that's not my position. You're not a recalcitrant flock. Let me just clarify that. But my position as a pastor. So the pastor frustrated with a recalcitrant trock, flock <laughs> is always in peril of dealing only with the surface issues. And frequently he will turn for help to the sinister twins, duty and debt. It got me thinking about why this can happen. It's maybe it's partly laziness. Sometimes they, these are just the easiest paths to go down. It takes too much effort sometimes and time to sort things out properly and well. I remember <clears throat> as, as a child, there's one instance when my mum literally threw a shoe at me, <clears throat> which I fortunately managed to duck, but it smashed the clock behind me. But it was, it, was, it was because she just got so frustrated with me that the only course of action she felt she could take at that moment was to th take her shoe off. As she was taking her shoe off, she just picked it up and just threw it at me. Um, and, it, and it was a shock. Why was it a shock? Because she doesn't normally do that. 
That's not the normal way she would behave and, and discipline me. In fact, there was no warning that the shoe was going to come. Um, and normally there would be some sort of warning and sort of description. I'm frustrated. If you don't behave, then something's going to happen. But this just happened completely out of the blue. Um, so, <coughs> excuse me. So laziness kind of can lead us to act in a way that we shouldn't, wouldn't normally act in. Um, or we just, sometimes we give into that tantrum and bad behavior every time. You know, because it's just easy, isn't it? If you're, if you're kids throwing a tantrum in the supermarket trolley line out, they're lying on the floor, it's easier just to give them something, isn't it? Each time they have a, each time they have a tantrum, rather than to address it, and, because it's just easier and it's more convenient. But, it's a good bit easy, but really it was, in this particular situation, my, it's my reaction and behavior, that's got me thinking about, can come out of selfish motives. So this idea of just responding to surface issues without really digging deep, it can sometimes come out of my own selfish desires. <coughs> come out of my selfish motivation to just get rid of things and not to engage and not to, to be bothered with it. Rather than wanting to communicate to people a real living God. And the verse in Daniel that we've just read, I think this talks about how the enemy of God's people, so this person that's seducing with flattery, says, this is the enemy of God's people, will try and destroy God's trust in people. Trust in who God is. Because if God's people can be sort of lured into misunderstanding who God is, they will misrepresent God to those who need to meet the living God. Because the God we know is the God we show. I've got a couple of props here to sort of help us maybe understand a little bit how we can misrepresent God to others because we can slip into a misunderstanding of who God is. I've got a stick here and I've got a carrot. Now, most of us are probably familiar, aren't we, with the idea of a stick and a carrot? We understand what it is. We understand that this, these are ways of motivating people, aren't they? Aren't they? To do something. You've got the stick. You don't, you don't behave. I'm going to hit you. You wait till your father gets home. That sort of idea, isn't it? You don't behave. You'll get some punishment. That's one way of motivating people, isn't it? The stick. <coughs> if you don't do well enough, you'll be punished. Then there's the carrot. Now, for most of us, that's not a particularly alluring thing, is it? <laughs> Unless you're a vegetarian. Um, but a carrot, for a donkey, though, that's great. And this is obviously alluding to how a donkey, you motivate a donkey. But, but we, we, all, we all get what I talk about, don't we? We talk about the carrot. It's like, here you go. You do something good, you'll get a reward. If a donkey performs well, he'll get a carrot at the end of it. If we perform well, we'll get something good at the end of it. It's this idea of, so there's duty, the stick, duty. If you break the covenant, you'll get punished. Yeah? Here we go. Here's the gift, wonderful gift of heaven that we've got for you. Here you go, just take it. It's a lovely, lovely, juicy carrot. You don't need to do anything, just take it. It's fine, it's wonderful. Just take it. If you take it, you're owed, you're duty bound, aren't you? Bit of a contract. Take the sick, I expect you to do well, I expect you to behave. 
because you've got this wonderful thing I'm going to give you. If I do well, I will be rewarded. To the stick, if I do badly, I'll get punished. The carrot, if I do well, I'll be rewarded. That's the sort of idea. And sometimes that's how we can view God, can't it? We all know these things work for a short period. Let's, let's get that straight. You know, there's, there's nothing wrong, necessarily, with contractual. You know, we all have, if we work, we have a contract of employment, don't we? As kids, you know, bringing up kids, whether you've been brought up or whether you're bringing up kids, you understand there are certain contractual things that happen, and it's important. Our employment contract lays out the reward that we'll get if we perform well. Sometimes you may get a bonus if you perform even better. Um, but there's also punishment. If you don't work well, then there'll be consequences. You know, we might have to go down a disciplinary route. The kids bring up, you know, pocket money as a kid, I remember. You, maybe you get pocket money now, I don't know. But you used to get pocket money. But it wasn't just, oh, here's some money. Go out and buy some sweets. Um, here's some money because you emptied the bins this week. Or here's some money this week because you've helped do the washing up. So there's not necessarily bad things in these things, but there can be an overemphasis on this. But, and I think, <coughs> excuse me, it'd be great, because it's a smaller number, it's a bit more relaxed over the summer. Why don't you turn into groups of two or three, and I just want you to think about, what's your view of God? Do you view God as somebody who's got a big stick all the time? Are you motivated? What's your view of God? Or, you, or is your view of God someone who just gives things out the whole time with no, with no expectation on it? So just spend a couple of minutes thinking about <clears throat> what do you think your view of God is? Just very simply. And then also just ask each other or talk about what do you think are the dangers of the stick view? And what do you think the dangers might be the carrot view. Just spend two or three minutes, turn around, if you don't know each other, say hello, introduce yourself, and spend about two or three minutes just saying, what, how do I view God? What's my view of God? And what are the dangers of a tomb, a stick, and a carrot? <clears throat> Thank <laughs> you. 
Okay, if I just grab your attention again. <clears throat> so I don't know, don't know where, you're, where you're sitting in this. Maybe you've not even, never thought about it before. But sometimes you think, oh yeah, maybe the reason I've behaved that way or reacted that way is because I have this view about how gods are. And sometimes that may be just your personality, mightn't it? Sometimes we can be quite a, a strict personality. Sometimes we can be a very relaxed personality. And you may have come up with lots of different things about why, why the stick uh, is, is good, but why overusing the stick is not good. And the same with the carrot. You may have come up with lots of different sort of reasons for that. There was a man um, called Jonathan Edwards back in the 1700s. If you don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, we've got the beauty of Google now. And I would always recommend people to look at people who were Christians in the, in, in the past, who led big missions and, and had a big impact on bringing the good news of Jesus to others. They, they inspire us, they help us. So I'd encourage you, if you don't know Jonathan Edwards, to maybe go away and read a little bit about him. Um, but he was famous for a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Ooh, <laughs> great sermon, isn't it? That was what he went around preaching. That was, that was what he was famous for. He would con constantly, be, when he, wherever he traveled, and this was his message. And, um, and it, it was an unflinching sort of like exposition, if you like, an unflinching talk on the danger of hell for the people who didn't know God, for the unconverted, as he said. Um, but it was interesting. He'd been doing this and been traveling around. But a few years later, he, he, he met another guy who was working with, um, so he, this was in North America, at the time, and he, he met another guy called David Brainerd, who was specifically reaching out to indigenous Native American people at the time. That's where his mission was focused. And he had this conversation, because um, <coughs> Brainerd had been, had been preaching to, to the gospel in New Jersey, and he reported this, he says, it was surprising to see, this is, this is sorry, this is Jonathan Edwards speaking, it was surprising to see how their hearts seemed to be pierced with the tender and melting invitations of the gospel when there was not a word of terror spoken to them. Brainerd's experience convinced Edwards that people could be converted even without the threat of judgment provoking them to fear. They needed to hear about God as the first and greatest priority. The glory of God in Christ was sufficient and powerful to draw unbelievers to repentance and faith. Of course, Edward's not wrong necessarily to preach sinners in the hungries of God. <clears throat> and he sort of never turned back on preaching about God's judgment. Because as we look at the Bible, there is God proclaims judgment on sin. But his growing desire from that point on was to have his preaching filled more with the knowledge of who God is. A loving God, the glory of God that says is expressed in Jesus on the cross. So if the God we're familiar with instills fear and anxiety, a God of punishment, God with his big stick, if we hold that belief that our salvation depends solely on our good deeds and that we'll be condemned for making too many mistakes, that's what the stick, our message, those of us who take the good news of Jesus to others, will center around human shortcomings. We'll focus on the, our failings, we'll focus on where you can do better. We'll focus on, on what you're doing wrong. That's where our focus will be. 
And the, and the focus will then shift to the necessity to do good works for salvation. So you'll need to do good works to please God. Otherwise, he's going to punish you. That's the danger, isn't it, of having this, over, over this view of God overly familiar with the stick. But also, even in the end, the idea of these carrots, they wouldn't necessarily work. I don't know how you discussed this, talked about this as ultimate motivations. Because what happens is they are, by nature, additions to what the gospel says. They're additions to what believers already have in knowing God. Knowing God is not sufficient. You need to offer sweeteners to those who know God. To entice those who know God into action. Somehow they're extra to knowing God. Somehow they're, little, they're rewards that come from being good and doing well. You know God, God already, but they imply that there are additional benefits if you, if, to collect if you just play the game of the church. And these rewards, this idea of these rewards, risk communicating to people that church is part of a conditional relationship with God. So yeah, great, lovely. There's some things you can have. God gives you things. But we think they're conditional on what we do. If you prove your zeal and commitment by helping get the message out, so if you're out there on the streets every week, or if you give your money, give us your money because God's going to reward you for giving money, then we can let you play in the worship band. We can get you on the prayer team. We can help you... Um, <clears throat> lead a ministry. Those are, those are the rewards for, for, for good behavior and doing what we want you to do. Or actually, we can even place an overemphasis on the gifts, or particularly the gifts of the Holy Spirit, for example. You may have been to some churches where they talk about the gift of tongues, which is a gift of the Holy Spirit. A gift is something that's given, given by God. But in some instances, you may hear a message that says, unless you speak in tongues, you're not a Christian. Or you're not a proper Christian unless you speak in tongues. You're not a proper Christian. Or God, God doesn't answer your prayers because you're not a proper Christian. God will answer your prayers if you do better. God will give you the gift of tongues if you do better. So although it's a lovely reward, it's a gift. It's still conditional on doing something. It's a conditional thing. But the Bible talks about a God who lives and loves unconditionally. And if we preach a God or perceive a God as purely compassionate and think that he overlooks our sins, so there's no implication, our message might not even take a shape that's important. As it could be assumed that everyone is already saved because it doesn't require anything. So if we focus too much on this wonderful grace and love of God, which is there, and it is important. But if we overemphasize it, and it didn't say it doesn't cost anything, or it doesn't count for anything, then we have no message, do we? It's like, well, what do I need to do? Surely I'm saved anyway, because God's given me his, his, his salvation. So the danger is really that these attitudes, in the end, focus attention on our performance. 
That's what the devil in that verse in Daniel loved, would love to do. He'd love to take the attention away from knowing who the true living God is. It talks about violating the covenant. Okay. That's the punishment idea, the stick idea. God, you know, this is the, God is the one who's going to punish you. He's overly severe. He's not worth serving because he's really harsh and cruel. If you do anything wrong, that's it. You're out. The devil would love us to know that's, that's the idea of God because that's the God we'll communicate. But also, he, then it says, isn't it, about flattery. So he will seduce with flattery those who break the covenant. So the idea is, actually, if you break the covenant, it doesn't matter. Because God loves you anyway. God loves you. You're wonderful. You're amazing. So it doesn't matter what ha- what's happened. That's how the devil works. He wants to undermine or emphasizing maybe the God of the stick, the God of the carrot. And takes away from our full knowledge of God. But Daniel says, no, this verse in Daniel says, no, the one who knows God, one who knows God resists these things, understands the techniques and takes action and takes action. <laughs> if this is our view, that our, our view of God depends on our performance, then our, our view of God shapes our behavior. And that will affect how you communicate with others of the, of the God that you love. Our tendency will be toward diminishing God. Okay, so it'll be focusing on things that almost without our notice are not quite Jesus and him crucified. We may find ourselves overemphasizing themes of, of, of the gospel like grace or heaven but not explicitly holding Christ out as the gift. So yes, you'll get into heaven. Yes, God is gracious, but without showing that Jesus is the way that God shows his grace and love. We may offer the world the hope of a transformed life, healed hurts and renewed communities, but make Jesus the means to these things rather than the center of all these things. These things are the blessings of the gospel. But if they're elevated to become the center and our focus, they'll become nothing more than substitute gods. But that's not really the true image of the Bible, the God of the Bible, is it? If we, we read the Bible, we understand the Bible, we, we get a deeper knowledge and understanding of this God. Yes, God is a God of justice, and he will exert his justice. But God is also a God of love and compassion and mercy. And where do we see that accumulated? Where do we see that reach its sort of climax, if you like? Well, it's on the cross. So we see that. So we have a, a cross up there. It's where, literally, the justice of God meets the mercy of God. Yeah, that's what happens on the cross. God's justice is satisfied. His, his anger against sin, the punishment of sin, is dealt with on the cross through Jesus. And his mercy and love and grace, the things he gives to us, are shown through the cross. The cross is where God's perfect justice meets God's perfect mercy. You may have heard that. That's often spoken about. And it shows that the God of the Bible is not a demanding grasping, needy God 
who needs your behavior, who needs your worship, but actually it's a generous, loving, giving God. And every time we see Jesus on the cross, that's what we see, this God who gives. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says this, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. If you want to see the glory of God, it's displayed in Christ. How do we know God? It's revealed through Jesus. The ESV study Bible notes say this, in the cross of Christ, all God's major attributes are displayed. And he says in condensed lucidity. What that means is in a very short way, in a very short space of time, all the attributes of God are displayed in the cross of Christ. His wrath, his anger against sin, his grace, his justice, his mercy, his sovereignty, so his rule over everything, his goodness, his love, his holiness, his compassion, his wisdom and power meet there. This is on the cross for the world to see. When discussions of God's attributes become a little bit theoretical and sterile, it's the face and cross of Christ that restores radical clarity, reality, and compelling beauty. Is this the God you know, the God you see on the cross? Or is it, or is it the God of the stick? That's, that's the only God you've ever known, or the only God you've ever thought about. Because you've, you've never truly grasped the loving mercy of God and what Jesus did on the cross, if that's your view of God. If, is, is your view of God that, like the carrot view of God, that he's just a, somewhere to, to receive things from? I get all the good things from God without understanding that there, there needs to be a change in our hearts and understanding. Because every God has a mission, if you like, and every God is advertised through his followers. And evangelism, if you like, so telling other people about Jesus, is by definition the good news of Jesus Christ. It's not only about a warning about the last day. When it comes to sharing the good news, the gospel that moves us must be the same that we expect to win the hearts of those we're communicating with. So does God, of the, God of the stick and punishment doesn't move us, does it? The God of this wonderful, all-encompassing grace that will save everybody doesn't move us to speak to people about Jesus. Because if, if it did, there'd be no point in telling people, would there? Because there'd be nothing, nothing for people to do. There'd be no need to respond to it because God's already done it. It's just there. You just pick it and take it. Excuse me. If we burden ourselves with the guilt of abandoning people to hell, it will be the message of guilt and hell that they will pass on, rather than the message of the saviour of sinners and conqueror of hell. Jesus Christ will not be the jewel of the gospel we tell, but only the means to escape a terrible end. And because of this, the resulting people that come to know God through those, those sort of people 
<coughs> they would have been motivated by an instinct for self-preservation. Yeah. I need to save myself. Oh, it's my personal salvation that's important. It's not the knowledge and love of God. Disciples who are won not by the glory of God's repentance and faith, but by an appeal to their own well-being will continue in the same direction. However, if we firmly believe that our salvation, so our rebirth and justification from sin, being made right with God, if we truly believe that that stems from God's mercy through our faith in Jesus, not through anything else, not through our good behavior, then our message will reflect God's compassion for sinners because we'll understand all that. Michael Reeves and Daniel Hames in their book, how the nature of God shapes and drives the mission of the church, which is just a, a book that I've been reading and reflecting on, says this, our delight in God is the main fuel for mission. Our delight in God is the main fuel for mission. Yes, we know there's going to be a hell and that those who don't put their trust and belief in Jesus are going to go to that. But that's not our main focus of mission. That's not our main motivation. It shouldn't be. If that's our main motivation of mission, then maybe we've got too big an idea of God of the stick. <coughs> Excuse me. When we find ourselves, as they go on to say, struggling with motivation, battling against guilt, we're not doing enough. I should be doing more. Or discouraged with the fruit of our witness, why are we not seeing more people come to know Jesus? Why, why am I bothering doing this? Where's the reward for all my hard work? Because you promised, God, there'd be reward if I had worked hard. But discouraged with that fruit of witness, we must, they say, return to the cross where the fountains of God's goodness is open to us. When our evangelism, so when our telling other people about Jesus becomes dry and dutiful, we must come for our heart's refreshment to Jesus who shows us the reality of his Father in heaven. Those who know God will show God. The God we know is the God we show. Do you, do you know God as revealed through Jesus? And you may not know God yet. You may not know this God of true justice and true, true mercy who has taken the punishment for your sin on himself and gives you his righteousness. That's this giving God. That's what we see every time we look at the cross. What we see is a giving God. We see the person, Jesus, on the cross. God's only son who he gave, it says, for the punishment of our sin. And not only did he give his son to take the punishment for our sin, to take the wrath of God, to complete the justice of God against sin, but it says it also, Jesus gives us his righteousness. He doesn't demand good behavior from us in any way. He doesn't say, I've taken the punishment for your sin now. If you do this, you'll get more and more and more. Because God has, Jesus, it says, has given us his righteousness. On the cross, he exchanged our, our sin, our guilt, for his goodness and righteousness. That's what happens on the cross. That's the revelation of God that happens on the cross through Jesus. And we see that this God who gives. He's not a demanding, grasping God. He's a God who gives. He gave his son for our punishment. 
He gives us the goodness of right living that Jesus did on our behalf for us. So we can't, we can't be any better or do anything more because Jesus has already done it for us. That's what the Bible tells us. Jesus, it says, was the only one who was without sin. He didn't deserve to die, but he chose to go to the cross to take the punishment for our sin. And he gives us his righteousness instead. The language sometimes talks about an exchange of dirty rags for, for white gar- garments of white. It takes away our guilt and shame. So we no longer need to feel this idea that there's, there's a punishing God over me, this, this big stick hanging over me. I no longer need to perform better to please God because Jesus has already pleased God in everything he's done. And if I believe and follow Jesus, I have his goodness in me. I have his righteousness to fall back on. And if that's the God we know, this wonderful, loving God, who is a God of justice, who demands that, the, that sin is dealt with, but does it through, by, through giving his only son to take that punishment. And if we know this God who gives us his righteousness, is not demanding anything more from us, then this is the God we're going to show to people. This is the God we're going to communicate to people. So it's important, isn't it, for us to get back to this, <coughs> come back to a true and full knowledge of God because the God we know is the God we show. And Daniel, the guy in, in the books named after that we looked at, that's how he got into trouble in the first place with Daniel. If you know the story of Daniel, right at the beginning of his, of his story in the book of Daniel, they tried to trap him. People tried to trap Daniel so that he would not have an influence anymore on the leaders. And what they did was they, they convinced the king to produce an edict to say, no, <coughs> anyone who prays to a God or human being in the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. You may have heard of that story of Daniel in the lion's den. Now, your majesty, make this a decree. Put it in writing so that it cannot be altered. So it happened that there was this decree that no one will pray for 30 days except to the king. What does Daniel do when he hears this? He says, when he learned this, when he learned that it had been published, he went home. wasn't to hide, wasn't to run away of fear. He says he went to his upstairs room where that window opened toward Jerusalem where he had come from, where God's people had been established. He looked to where he'd come from. He looked to the God who he knew. And three times a day, he says he got down on his knees and prayed, (coughs) giving thanks to God just as he had done before. He didn't change. In the light of this challenge to not worship God, to give up on God, even if it was only a period of 30 days, Jesus said, no, I know the living God Daniel knew. I've always known God. I'm going to look back to him. I'm going to remind myself of who he is. I'm going to pray to him, regardless of what other people say. And he showed it. He says later, he said, then these men, ones who tried to trap Daniel, went as a group 
what happened? It said they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. The God Daniel knew was the one he showed, even though it was deemed illegal for him to do that at that time. He knew that there was a living God. The king of King Darius, Persia, wasn't, wasn't the living God. He wasn't the one that needed to be worshipped. He wasn't the one who'd um, kept Daniel all through his life. It was the living God that he worshipped and knew. The God who is God, regardless of what happens around. And he continued to pray to him. How can, we, how can our lives show the glory of God? Are we seeking to know God in his word? So how do we know God? Well, it's the revelation on the cross, but how do we know that? It's through, through the word that God has given us, the Bible. Looking at that, reminding ourselves regularly of this God of the Bible and asking questions about it. And not just focusing on one particular bit, but just getting to know the Bible, the whole story. Because otherwise we can get focused too much on the God of the stick or the God of the carrot because we just like little bits of the Bible rather than getting an understanding of the big picture. The book of Daniel is an interesting book, but so many people just focus on the prophecies of the end times. That's, the, that's what we need to learn. That's what we need to know. Because in there, it tells us what's going to happen in the end. And we need to get, we get, people get so caught up with this sort of stuff. Whereas I think what Daniel is, is really getting us to, to learn, and particularly from this verse, is that Daniel's perseverance and faith in God was maintained because he knew the living God. And he was not going to give up. He was not going to um, <coughs> be seduced into worshipping another God. He was not going to be flattered with positions of power and authority, which he was given. He was ruler of all of the, of the, of the, of the kingdom under the king. He wasn't going to be flattered by that because he knew the living God. He was not going to change the way he lived. He was going to stick to the God he knew. And like Daniel, being devoted to spending time with God is prayer. Praying out of the word. That's why we have these devotionals that help us to understand. I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to spend time worshipping as part of it band. Matt and, Hel Matt and Sean, do you want to come up? We, we love it. You get used to, that's it, isn't it? You get used to so many things. Like, yeah, the band's coming. Oh, yeah. It's Matt and Sean. But as they sort of prepare, I want to just go back into your little groups again. Sorry. And I just want you to ask a question together and then maybe just spend a bit of time praying for one another and say how can you <coughs> or how can we maintain a true and good knowledge of who God is the right knowledge how can we maintain that what are the things that we can do as individuals but also together because the, we need each one another to encourage each other so maybe just spend a bit of time thinking oh yeah you know, I've, 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 maybe I've let slip on this thing. I need to get back on that. Would you pray for me? Or you might think, yeah, we need this as a church. We need to do this. Pray for the church. So just turn, go into those groups again. Turn to one another. How can we maintain a right knowledge of God? What are the things that we can do to help us to grow in this?
What are things that I might need to do personally? And then just start to pray for one another. And then we'll, we'll come and worship this wonderful God. Okay.